Hello everyone, welcome to another Lab News podcast. My name is Phil Prime. Thanks very much for being here. Hope you are all well. Now, quick question for you. What's the connection between a life-saving bra, medicinal roller coasters and dung beetles that navigate by the stars? Some of you might have guessed already, but for those that haven't, it's all to do with one of my favourite dates on the scientific calendar. Five, four, three, two... One, go! Now that was the excitable crowd at the paper plane throwing section of what has to be the most fun science prize giving ceremony there ever was. And we're of course talking here about the infamous Ig Nobel Prizes. So, for the uninitiated, the Ig Nobel Prizes are held every September at a ceremony at Harvard University in the US. And it's at this ceremony that, and I'm quoting now from the website, 1,100 splendidly eccentric spectators watch the new winners step forward to accept their prizes. So, who can win these prizes? Why are actual, genuine, bona fide Nobel Prize winners involved? And what has all this got to do with celestial navigation in dung beetles? Well, there was only one way to find out, and that was to track down the man behind the awards, the ringmaster at the prize-giving ceremony, and all-round research raconteur-in-chief, Mr Mark Abrams. Now, for those that know the Ig Nobel Prizes, you'll know why I'm so excited to have Mark on. They are brilliant, they are funny, but of course, there is so much more to them than just the comedy aspect. So... Over to Mark. The heart of the ceremony is when we announce the new Ig Nobel Prize winner. And you get a prize for having done something that makes people laugh and think. We've been doing this since 1991. There are 10 prizes every year. Uh, anybody can send in a nomination. In a, in a typical year, we get oh, roughly 10,000 or so new nominations. And we're also out there scouring everything ourselves, looking for more. And we also look backwards in time. You know, we've given prizes for things that happened years and years earlier. So there's, there's, you know, there is a lot of competition, even though most people don't know they're in it. Anyway, we, we pick 10 winners. Um, in almost every case, we offer it to the winners quietly in advance and give them the chance to say no if they want to. And if they say no, that's the end of it. And we never tell anybody. But you know, happily, almost everybody we offer a prize to says yes. So, laugh, then think. And it became very clear after talking to Mark that this is something he takes really seriously. The Igs are more than a mere sardonic finger wag at the apparently ridiculous. They're to celebrate scientific originality and curiosity in their most spectacular forms. So, if all this still isn't quite clear, I think the best way to illustrate this is to give you some brilliant examples of previous winners. Now, the 2020 prize ceremony has just happened. I actually caught Mark hot off the press on the other side of it. So, I can even give you some of the latest prize winners. Uh, here we go. So, the Acoustics Prize went to an international team for inducing a female Chinese alligator to bellow in an airtight chamber filled with helium-enriched air. And yes, don't worry, we have a recording of that. Absolutely spectacular. Well done to the team. 
Now, the thing about the Eags is they've been going for 30 years, so there's an absolute treasure trove of past winners to explore. And I urge you to do so. Just head over to their website and take a look. Um, but one of my all-time favourites has to be the 2018 Ignobel Medicine Prize. Now, this went to Professor David Wartinger from the Michigan State University's College of Osteopathic Medicine. And he found that riding a roller coaster helps patients pass kidney stones with a nearly 70% success rate. How did he find this out? Well, he'd had a couple of patients report that they had passed their kidney stones during their annual trip to Walt Disney World. Ever the scientist, Wartinger, of course, wanted to test this idea. So he knocked up a synthetic 3D model of a hollow kidney, along with 174 kidney stones of varying shapes, sizes and weights and booked himself a ticket for Walt Disney World. Now, it turns out you can't ride just any old coaster. The ideal one to ride if you've got a stubborn kidney stone is one called Big Thunder Mountain. Ideal, says Wartinger, because it is quick and rough with some twists and turns, but no upside down or inverted movements. So, what makes for a good Ig Nobel Prize winner? All of them, from bellowing alligators to medicinal roller coasters, they all have something in common. And that, says Mark, is the element of surprise. That's really the way I think of it. That's what we're doing. We're trying to find something in it, usually not difficult to do, that's so surprising that when you first hear about this aspect, this thing, you're going to laugh. You may not know why. It's just that's just your natural reaction to it. And when you're laughing for that 10 seconds or two seconds, whatever, you're paying attention. That's, to me, a big part of what we're doing is we're trying to focus people's attention on all kinds of stuff that may be bad or good or who knows, but it's so damn surprising and interesting that it's worth your paying attention for at least a couple seconds rather than not paying attention, which is what most people do with almost everything. It's clear that Mark has thought deeply about the meaningful side of all this. And so after 30 years, does he still think that science and humour, especially in these serious times, make for good bedfellows? There are a lot of things that are both serious and funny at the same time, all mixed up together. In fact, not just a lot of things, pretty much everything is, depending on what you look at, what aspect of it, and when you look at it, specifically for science. The, the thing that pretty much all of us are taught in school from the beginning, from when we're very young, is science is a long series of great discoveries, usually done by geniuses. And in every case we learn in school, those people knew what they were looking for, or if they didn't know what they were looking for, the moment they found something, they realized how wonderful it was and how it was going to change the world. And so did everybody else the moment they heard about it. And then when you get older, if you start meeting some scientists and if you become one yourself, you start to hear that, well, that wasn't what happened with all of the people you're meeting. It wasn't like that for them at all. And then when you start to dig into the history of some of the things you learned in school, you learn that, well, it wasn't really like that for the things you learned in school. When something was new, Usually the first time the person or the group was talking about it to anybody else, everybody else didn't think it was interesting and maybe thought it was stupid or foolish and made fun of them, joked about it. And sometimes that went on for a long, long time. Then these things that we end up learning about in school became valuable to people. 
and useful to people. And from that point on, the whole story changed. And after a few years went by, the whole original way it looked to everybody disappeared. No longer is it a story of, I don't really know what happened here, <laughs> um, but I'm going to try to find out and then persuading people and having people one by one decide, hey, this isn't just a foolish little toy thing. This could be really important. That story gets lost. What I try to keep reminding myself is that pretty much everything that looks important probably has some part to the story that also looks pretty funny and probably is pretty funny, even to the people who did it, although they may not in public behave that way anymore very often. And some of the things that look foolish are going to turn out to be the opposite. Everybody will decide at some point, this is important and wonderful and how how dare anybody say this was ever funny. So was that a long-winded enough answer to your question? Precisely the right amount of wind, I'd say. Thank you, Mark. Now, it's clear that one of the things Mark has done over the years with the IGS and his publication, which is called The Annals of Improbable Research, is to peer past the surface of how we do science and engineering, apparently composed and sober, and revel in the uncertainty that lurks underneath. If you or at any kind of science meeting, a big formal one or even a little one of two or three people in a hallway. Most of what goes on is arguing and quibbling and gossiping. And yet, if you only see science by looking at the science journals or at the news reports of what was in the science journals, you don't get a hint of that. It's all very high level and full of certainty. <laughs> and no personalities. And it's, it's, I don't know, I think it's, I think it's not good that, you know, we're all raised from early on with the idea that everything happens the way it does in some fairy tale story. This is something that has become particularly relevant in our current pandemic situation, where understandably, the public are craving certainty. The reality is often backwards of what people are taught, it is that the scientists compared to other people, there's not much difference between someone who's a scientist and someone who's not. I think one way of looking at the big difference is the scientists are trying to be really clear with each other and with themselves about what is uncertain. Nobody else is. Everybody else is trying to tell as quickly as possible, pare down the story of something. So it's a nice, clean, certain, no questions left story. The scientists are doing the opposite of that. And it's only at times like this that most other people have any reason to even see that that's what scientists do. And it can be jarring because it's not what, what everybody's taught scientists do. Yeah, that may well resonate with the scientists listening to this. And it can in some ways feel a little bit depressing. But we mustn't forget that at its heart, the IGS is an absolute celebration of science. And so on that note, it's now time for the Lab News podcast top five IG Nobel Prize winners. Straight in at number five, it's the Physics Prize from 2019, which went to Patricia J. Yang of the Georgia Institute of Tech for figuring out why wombats do cube poo. Slamming in at number four, it's the 2013 Joint Prize in Biology and Astronomy, which went to Marie Dack and her team for figuring out that when dung beetles get lost, they navigate their way home by looking at the Milky Way. 
Slipping into number three, the Ignabel Peace Prize from 2005 went to Claire Rind and Peter Simmons of Newcastle University for electrically monitoring the activity of a brain cell in a locust whilst that locust was watching Star Wars. Just missing out on the top slot, in at number two is the Public Health Prize from 2009, which goes to Eleanor Bodnar for inventing a bra that, in an emergency, can be quickly converted into a pair of protective face masks, one for the wearer and one for a needy bystander. An impossible choice to make, but we do have a winner in at number one for pure dedication to their work is the 2009 Medicine Prize, which went to Donald Unger of California in the US for investigating a possible cause of arthritis of the fingers by diligently cracking the knuckles of his left hand, but never cracking the knuckles of his right hand every day for more than 60 years. Okay, that's quite enough of that. Full disclosure, I actually wanted the Top of the Pops countdown music for that, but it turns out that's really expensive to license. Now, ordinarily, as I mentioned, this is a physical event hosted at Harvard University. Uh, But given the COVID-based times we live in, what did they do this year? In March, it became clear that anything we would plan for September is probably going to get blown to smithereens. And the way things were shaping up politically in the U.S., it was going to be difficult for a lot of the winners to travel from their own country to the U.S. And maybe a lot of them wouldn't want to come to this place that was getting nastier and nastier and pile on the reasons. So we we decided pretty quickly, all right, this year, regretfully, very regretfully, we're not going to have an event in a theater with 1,100 people in the audience throwing paper airplanes and all that stuff. So at that point, we realized, okay, this is a chance and an obligation, but it's a chance for us to look at everything that we do in this very complicated Ig Nobel Prize ceremony. And it's really complicated. By design, it's pretty much every kind of public event you've ever had to endure, all done simultaneously as one event at very high speed, upside down. (laughs) So we had a chance to look at every single piece of it and figure out, can we do this if we're doing it over the internet? And should we, you know, is it gonna work as well? Is there a better way? You know, as long as we're looking at everything, is there a better way to do everything? So it was really, it was a lot of work. And it's about a hundred people, almost all volunteers working on this, you know, all year round. But at the same time, we got to really go back and look at a lot of problems that we had solved over the course of 30 years and solve them in many cases in completely different ways. Now, it's worth mentioning at this point that one of the many brilliant things about the prize ceremony is a particularly novel solution to keep speakers to time. Here's Mark backing 1999 introducing the technique. Now, last year we had a problem with many of the speakers exceeding their allotted time. Uh, Here's how we're going to solve that problem. Please welcome the charming, delightful, ever so cute, Miss Sweetie Poo. (laughs) Miss Sweetie Poo is eight years old. Miss Sweetie Poo, would you please demonstrate what you'll do when a speaker exceeds his or her allotted time? Please stop. I'm bored. Please stop. I'm bored. Please stop. Yeah, 
it's a system never to be beat. And to this day, the eight-year-old Miss Sweetie Poo makes an appearance every year. Another annually recurring piece of brilliance is the fact that each Ignobel Prize is given by a genuine Nobel Prize winner. So how do you get Nobel laureates willing enough to come along and take part in this madcap ceremony? I invited them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know any other any other way to do it. <laughs> Not every Nobel Prize winner is eager to do this, but an awful lot are. And there are some who have made it clear they they enjoy it. But the way it's been phrased sometimes is, well, that's not my cup of tea to be in public. And uh, But I, some of them who, who do come, in fact, some of them who come pretty much every year have told me that same thing for them is an advantage that I get to be in public, you know, as as a human being, I'm not treated, I walk into a room and everybody thinks that I'm, I'm the smartest person in the universe and I know the answer to all their problems. <laughs> but for once, I don't have to have that burden. I can just be there and enjoy it and we can all be people together. So what about those nominated for an Ignobel? Is anyone ever offended that someone has dared to see the funny side of their research? It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And... Ah, it's, it's just kind of sad, I think. The, the reaction in those cases occasionally is, well, what I've done, you may find it funny and other people may find it funny, but it's too important to laugh at. And, okay, well, you know, that's, that's their decision. Now, when I was speaking to Mark, we had the videos on because we were using Zoom. And in the background, I could see something that looked suspiciously like a bra hanging up. So I had to ask, was that the aforementioned prize winner that turns into a safety face mask? You're half right. It, it's, a, it's a pair of face masks. And it's the only time that I know of that somebody has been literally, exactly, precisely half right. Half right is good enough for me, I think. It doesn't do to overachieve. So given the fact we've all had to become very familiar with face masks lately, has Mark found occasion to use them yet? you know, every day there's opportunity. I've, I've got to admit, I haven't quite dared to myself. <laughs> but, um, you know, Elena Bodnar, Dr. Bodnar, who invented that, um, gotten to know pretty well over the years. And she was, if you watch the whole ceremony, you saw she had a, a part to play in the ceremony this year. After she won her prize, which was in 2009, she got so much attention around the world that she started a company to manufacture and sell those things. And it's still going. Ebra.com. E-B-B-R-A.com. Yeah, it's really incredible, isn't it? That's a genuine success story based off the back of what many see as a spoof awards. But as we've learned, there's so much more to it than that. And I'll leave the final word with Mark. Thanks very much, everyone. Speak to you next time. The, the, the more intimately you know something, the harder it is for you to see what it looks like to other people. And you can take advantage of this. It is to your advantage if you want to make it to your advantage that there's got to be a bunch of stuff about whatever you're doing that's really intriguing and surprising to other people. But you have to bring that to their attention in a way that's clear. Once you do, at least for a couple of seconds, they're interested in what you're doing. That's, that's a big part of what we're doing too, is just trying to get everybody's attention on these interesting things for at least a couple of seconds.